0: So has anyone commented on your new title of Professor Doom and Gloom? I don't know. (laughs) You think it's going to be sticky? I'm donning the mantle, wearing it proudly. Donning the mantle, singing the song. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the faithful, self-driving podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 21st, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who has yet to arbitrate with a porn star and is called Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week, we greet Philip Rocco, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. Professor Rocco's research examines the 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 consequences of institutional fragmentation for the development of public policy with a focus on the politics of health reform in the United States. He teaches courses on American politics and the policy-making process. He's co-authored a book on federalism and the implementation of the Affordable Care Act called Obamacare Wars, and his research has appeared in JAMA, Publius, the Journal of Public Policy, Public Administrative Review, the Journal of Health Policy, Politics, and Law. He won the William Anderson Prize for his dissertation, Reorganization, Organizing the Activist State. And I think, Phil, that's about to come out as a book,
1: right? Yeah, I'm currently working on – it'll have a new title, um, but it's currently uh, underway. It's going to be called Madison's Engineers.
0: Sounds great, and welcome to the pod.
1: So, uh, just before we
0: begin in earnest our conversation with Phil, a couple of updates on issues that we've discussed many times on the pod before. Um, First, the attempts to stabilize the ACA exchange markets. Uh, This issue dates back to October of last year, or is it even earlier, with the Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray bipartisan approach but we haven't really seen much since then through various budget and other deals and so on. Uh, Now we have Senators Alexander and Susan Collins releasing a new text that includes funding for cost-sharing reduction payments and federal reinsurance funding. However, it includes some poison pills for the Democrats, including more restrictions on abortion funding, with the apparently unstoppable ongoing arguments of what Hyde Amendment language to include and whether to make it permanent, which has been a long-time conservative aim. So at the moment, it looks like these ACA provisions at least have stalled, whether this will be fatal or not, I guess. We'll see when we have the uh, the next major shutdown crisis or something uh, coming over the next uh, week or so. Second, we've had a couple of great episodes lately discussing Section 1115 demonstration programs approved by President Trump's CMS. Thanks so much to Nicole Huberfeld and Heather Howard for starring in those episodes. This week, I think some useful follow-up, particularly for those of us in Indiana, there's a tremendous analysis of the Obama-approved Indiana plan by some Kaiser Foundation researchers. They report that a staggering 55% of those eligible to pay premiums under the Indiana waiver, which we called HIP 2.0, either never did pay premiums or made some payments and then stopped. Now, what were the consequences of that? Well, under the Indiana plan, as it was, this caused them to be moved down into a tier with fewer benefits or for some cohorts um, above 100 percent FPL they never received coverage at all or if they missed a payment were later locked out the key finding of the analysis at least in my opinion quote the top two reasons cited by people who never enrolled in or lost coverage were affordability and confusion about the payment process so I think Frank very much as we discussed in those recent episodes as Trump's CMS allows increases in premiums more administrative Hoops, work requirements, which themselves create more administrative hoops, and goodness knows what they'll think of next. I don't know, proficiency in juggling or something. I think we can only expect to see sharp declines in the Medicaid population. Frankly, I'm not sure I have the energy left to discuss whether these are intended or unintended consequences. But that's where we are at the moment.
2: I mean, it really is
0: tragic, and
2: I mean, it, it goes to show that for all of the anti-government rhetoric uh, on, put out on behalf of Republicans in Congress at the state level by the Trump administration, etc., it seems as though they are very keen on expanding bureaucrats' roles in people's lives in targeted ways, and this is part of it. And it's really unfortunate because as we've you know, discussed almost ad nauseum in previous shows, it's very difficult to discern any policy rationale for this intervention. It just seems to be an effort to throw up red tape barriers and inconvenience.
0: Finally, and it's not a massive health law issue this week, but I did see a report from the Sunlight Foundation on the removal of webpage and links pertaining to lesbian and bisexual health. From HHS's Office of Women's Health website. And I was thinking about that and non discrimination and public health, and it made me just want to say, I do hope you've all put in your orders for last week tonight with John Oliver's new children's book about rabbits, love and human rights. It's called A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo and profits go to the Trevor Project and AIDS United. And it also sends an important message to our country's current stink bug.
2: (laughs) Yes, I did see that and it was wonderfully illustrated. Uh, And I just wanted to add one more uh, element to our lightning round, which is there was a recent Council of Economic Advisors report um, on healthcare markets from the Trump administration. And you may wonder, you know, what's their angle? What is the the end point? What are they trying to maximize? And the title of the report is The Profitability of Health Insurance Companies. And it has good news. Um, Essentially, the uh, Council of Economics Advisors for the Trump administration are touting the fact that there's big profits for health insurers, and it looks like, thanks to recent tax reform, those profits are going to get even bigger. So I think now we're starting to discern what are the real endpoints for the health policy here? And I think we can look forward to higher stock prices, higher bonuses for CEOs and overall higher profitability. And I would not be surprised if the uh, next step might be to relax or to find ways of uh, avoiding or suspending uh, medical loss ratio requirements. I, I wonder when that will come onto the policy agenda, but it certainly would seem to be part of the vision of the CEA report.
0: Well, Phil, if we may turn to you and some of your voluminous work, a couple of pieces that uh, I had the opportunity to read that sort of have a, a data kind of spin to them. And the first is a, a jammer piece um, on Medicaid managed care with the question, can states meet the data challenges? Isn't that one of those titles? If you put a question mark in a title, is the answer. The answer is answer?
1: always
0: no. Yes. I, Better just law. Yes. That's right. That's right, indeed. What is the challenge here? Um, what is the challenge for Medicaid and MCEs? And where does the data fit in?
1: Well, I think the the paper which we wrote back in 2015, which oddly enough seems like days of optimism for uh, Medicaid managed care, uh, was really about uh, the way that managed care reform happened. But there was this huge drift um, in the infrastructure um, that uh, CMS and the states created um, in order to um, actually evaluate what managed care was doing um, to uh, health outcomes uh, in Medicaid. That, you know, in a sense, uh, we were applying, um, you know, decent data systems to actually looking at what was happening in traditional fee-for-service Medicaid. Um, but there were a variety of reasons why uh, states were slow to develop uh, data systems for actually monitoring and managing what was going on on um, inside um, uh, managed care, that uh, in some cases, uh, MCOs uh, just didn't uh, have the resources and kind of failed to develop the resources for actually making data submissions to state governments. There wasn't necessarily a lot of funding or interest within state governments for developing those data systems. And you know, by the uh, sort of end of 2015, only about half of the states that had comprehensive managed care programs even reported encounter data on managed care at all, which meant that If you wanted to know what the effect of managed care was, um, if you couldn't maybe infer it uh, on things like healthcare access, quality and affordability. it was really difficult to know, and it's important because you know 70, 74% of Medicaid enrollees or uh, I think maybe even more now, are enrolled in MCOs and you know states are experimenting with uh, doing more sort of managed care all the time. Um, but the infrastructure that we developed to actually learn about what was going on inside that, if you want to think about it, nationwide policy experiment, not really an experiment, you know, a trend in national policy. Um, we didn't really develop it. And I think that this is something that happens um, with with some level of frequency, and I, th- I think the eleven fifteen waivers are a- another good example of this. But uh, we invest a lot of money in um, promoting uh, new ways of delivering care, um, but on the back end, actually doing things to evaluate, you know, how those uh, purported innovations um, work is, you know, we don't really invest a lot of attention or energy into that, and this is reflected, I think, also in the scholarly literature on. Uh, healthcare innovation. Um, when you read the scholarly literature on healthcare, there's there's a great piece out by um, a, a political scientist named Andy Karch at the University of Minnesota and some of his colleagues. And what that piece shows is that there's actually a real bias in the in the literature on policy innovation um, in the states towards uh, sort of positive innovations. And they you know the literature doesn't necessarily look at cases where you know innovation doesn't happen uh, or the innovations that happen are in fact utter failures. We have this biased to imagine that all innovation is good. But in reality, it's not. And in many cases, we don't create the infrastructure to allow ourselves to know whether or not it is or not.
2: That is such a great point. And I just wanted to jump in to say that, you know, this is reminds me of uh, past show, guest, uh, show guests, Amit Sarpatwari and Aaron Kesselheim are working with um, Yale and uh, Amy Kapchinski and, and Peter Doshi actually at my law uh, university in Maryland to try to reconstruct systematically a lot of the drug literature that's out there because, or the drug, the clinical Uh, trials that have not been reported or have been only partially reported. And it is just such a recurring theme in healthcare that there is a highly curated and in many ways potentially biased literature out there with respect to innovation. And I I think it's it's great that you're particularly focusing on the managed care organizations here because there is such hype about the ability of the private sector to streamline and to do things better. And I think that we have found, you know, piecemeal problems problems uh, in many, many different implementations of managed care, but to have the overall data would be incredibly uh, helpful.
0: It also strikes me as a real missed opportunity, Phil, because an awful lot of these MCEs are um, working across state lines. So They have many, many programs across the country. So there's the opportunity for real sort of comparative data that comes in there. Plus, they have the flexibility that traditional Medicaid does doesn't have for putting in place some wraparound services uh, and care coordination, stuff like that, which would really help us uh, with regard to figuring out what Im- innovations might work.
1: Well, and I think that there's also a uh, sort of problem that, you know, regardless of what happens with uh, managed care and counter data, and, you know, and indeed, sort of since we, we put out this viewpoint in JAMA there, you know, has been some development. I think in terms of of bringing some of those data systems online at the state level. But the the larger sort of problem is that there's a a real loss of institutional memory within I think our uh, institutions that that make health policy about when reform ideas uh, fail, right? Uh, and 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 you see this uh, in that there are states continuing to push ahead with uh, sort of managed long term services and supports uh, reforms, uh, but there are also really good uh, pieces of evidence in the past where uh, those reforms have failed. And I think the thing that's really interesting is we don't create... in um our sort of regulatory uh frameworks for for doing policy experimentation um in in Medicaid or elsewhere we don't really create moments where uh people who are implementing new policies actually are forced to reconsider um or in a sense do a do a, a sort of systematic literature review right what happened uh in, in the past uh with these reforms and um it i, I think it, it it's a real recipe for sort of making the same mistakes um again and again
2: yes that makes a lot of sense and Now to move from the medical literature, uh, you published the last article in JAMA, to the political science literature uh, with your article on this very similar topic, um, the emergence of all-payer claims databases. Um, I just wanted to introduce the topic to our listeners through the way we've discussed it before, which was the context of the ERISA case, uh, Liberty Mutual versus GoBail, where there was a uh, insurers were contesting the ability of states to demand all-payer claims databases from self-insured insurance plans, because under ERISA, there are certain ways in which uh, state law is preempted. And I think we had uh, Aaron Fouzé brown walking us through the intricacies of that uh, very complex uh, area of law. But, you know, we didn't get behind the overall rise of these databases and the rationales for them. And I think that you and your co-authors in this new politics of U.S. healthcare prices do a wonderful job of that. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us the lowdown on this article, its argument and the, and what drew you to this topic of the all-payer claims databases?
1: I think what drew us to this topic is I think the same thing that draws uh, people to thinking about healthcare prices is just the sort of extreme rise um, in healthcare prices over the last several decades, really since the 1980s. And a lot of the political science literature had really focused on why earlier approaches to dealing with uh, the problem of, of healthcare prices uh, failed. There's a lot of literature, John McDonough, work on hospital rate-setting regimes um, in the states that, that kind of talks about the uh, sort of shaky institutional foundations of some of those regimes. And in, in some states, there were they were sort of open to criticisms because of uh, sort of dodged rate-setting rules and requirements. And, and in other states, they were sort of prey to the kind of neoliberalization of health policy. Um, but what we were really interested in is, you know, in kind of our own um, experience in reading Kaiser Health News and reading Reading other sources of information on what were the sort of ready-made or available policy tools that people were thinking about in, in trying to respond to uh, healthcare prices. you know, We, we came upon uh, all payer claims databases sort of again and again, and we're sort of interested in why uh, were sort of the major uh, sort of entrepreneurs that were interested in reform um, at the state level, why were they so focused on claims databases? And, you know, one thing that we sort of discovered, I think, in the course of doing some of this historical work is sort of began to draw on a concept by the sociologist of science, Susan Star, who talks about the idea of boundary objects, right? The idea that in situations where you have pieces of information or concepts that can, can be interpreted or used by different, sometimes very different uh, communities or actors in different ways, the same object is sort of means different things to different people. And we realized that databases were really functional at the state level like a sort of boundary object that initially in the early 1990s, the idea that transparency was going to sort of lead to better prices and and sort of prudent purchasing and things like that really came out of the market era, right? That the idea that to have properly functioning markets, you needed to provide consumers and purchasers with better information. And so what happened, though, is that, you know, you had these initial experiments where states like uh, Pennsylvania developed these kind of lists of... common prices for services. But the coalition for data actually changed, I think, in the early uh, 2000s. And what we began to see is that the database became something that could be sold to different coalition partners on a very different basis, not necessarily just dealing with prices or offering data as a kind of alternative uh, to regulation. But in some cases, the presence of these databases became something the group saw as a precursor uh, to regulation and uh, was sold to other groups or other actors sort of at the state level, for instance, state public health agencies really as a way of monitoring population health through things like claims data. And so what we saw is that sort of despite the fact that there's no real evidence that transparency itself has any relationship to improving or lowering prices or making markets more competitive or dynamic, what it does is it offers coalitions, sort of broad coalitions this way of uh, pushing reform forward. And, And I saw this reflected actually recently, um, last week, Oregon uh, state legislature passed this big piece of drug price uh, transparency legislation. There was an interview with the sponsor who said that, you know, what he really wanted to do was pass a more aggressive bill that, you know, included some mandated rebates and and caps on, um, I think, consumer drug copays. But what he really saw transparency as is a first step in that process, right? That, you know, ultimately what he's aiming for is kind of a rate-setting regime, but he saw transparency as the first step in that uh, process. And so, you know, we, we kind of saw data as this problematic thing in the sense that it is certainly valuable, and it's valuable, uh, especially to when you have when it's able to bring these broad sort of coalitions together. But the real question is how these sort of data oriented reforms actually uh, are able to be converted into something that actually allows you to get handle on uh, prices.
0: Now, I assume these, um, these kinds of databases or the origins of them don't just sort of come out of the ether, you spend some time in the article talking about the nationalist. Association of Health Data Organizations, NARDO, and how their work and in existing infrastructures uh, helped with the, the building of the APCDs. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, I know you've just been talking about the, the, uh, the use of the data to an extent, but I, I also thought the, the part of the article dealing with how it originated was fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the really interesting thing is that when some of these state level reformers uh, who were interested in creating all payer claims databases, you know, when they kind of began their work, they really had this existing infrastructure that they were developing and, and drawing on. Um, and I think that uh, organizations uh, like NATO, and NATO in particular, had this kind of commanding knowledge, not just of how to push pieces of transparency legislation through state legislatures, they had become really, um, I think, talented at uh, building coalitions and addressing concerns that legislators had, but they also had a really intuitive sense of... Uh, uh, of two things. First, um, where were the places in state law that you could leverage uh, to build some of these databases, right? What what pieces of state statutes kind of already existed uh, that you could kind of cobble together and kind of bring data together in the same place? But the other thing that they had a really intuitive sense of was some of the technology that was uh, necessary to actually put these databases together. And there was also really good examples of uh, where NATO is kind of allowing uh, states to kind of share capacity. For uh, developing some of these uh, technologies, right? So one of the sort of big lasting problems in terms of states acting like laboratories of democracy is that the the resources are really often not there. And I think what one thing that makes NATO you know, kind of uniquely successful at doing this is it it kind of recognized that and it recognized that you know if you're going to be able to push some of these reforms forward, you have to be able to share resources and kind of pool resources across state lines to make that happen.
0: So I do have to go back to the Gobek case that Frank discussed uh, in introducing a topic. I hope you realize that as soon as I started reading your paper, Phil, there was this little voice inside me that kept whispering, but Gobe! Gobay! And for a while, I was almost sure, because I forgot to look at the date, I was almost sure that you'd written the paper before the Supreme Court decision. But no, later in the paper you actually discussed Gobay. And, you know, I, I suppose my initial reaction was, well, so what? Because didn't Gobay just got APCD? So moving on, let's talk about something else. But I'm now actually wondering whether, in fact, Gobay, in a way, proves your point. Because it was the APCD's very potential in not only making prices more transparent, but also being a Foci of this stakeholder activity that was the very reason why industry needed to be snuffed out. And also that, and this is a point I think you do make in the article that the Amikai joining against Liberty Mutual seem to be some of the very stakeholders that you've been talking about.
1: The outcome of Gobe, I think, is you know I think to the people who were involved uh, with the case on uh, Vermont's side, I think the outcome was surprising. I think that people thought that the application of standards like the travelers' uh, standard um, that, that that was going to be that the case was pretty clear cut. But uh, I think what really interesting is that when you look at the amicus briefs, there's just a mountain of amicus briefs on Gobe's side, right? And it's from a really kind of diverse cast of characters, right? The National Governors Association, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the American Hospital Association, American Association of Medical Colleges, the list sort of goes on. And, you know, you do kind of just see this concentration of business interests filing in in favor of Liberty Mutual's position. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the case is, for me, Breyer's concurrence. And that, you know, I think one thing that kind of drew Breyer uh, into the majority opinion is his idea that really you could have the Department of Labor kind of provide a standard format uh, in which this data could be provided to states, right? And that was really the the Department of Labor's uh, role. And so, you know, one thing that you see after uh, the decision is uh, announced is that these groups kind of get back together and uh, begin working on kind of drafting a, a, a model set of provisions for the Department of Labor. Now, obviously, that effort is, is sort of stalled. It's it's not clear at all that the Trump Department of Labor is interested in, you know, advancing that uh, sort of uh, policy uh, agenda. But I think what's interesting is that one one indicator of the kind of strength of a coalition is what happens when they suffer policy failures, right? Or what happens when they when they suffer losses? And I think what struck us, and we were writing the paper because indeed we were writing it before Gobe even uh, got to the Supreme Court, uh, and then ultimately ultimately in the, pro- in the review process, right, Gobay occurred. And so we had to take that into consideration. But one thing that really struck us is even when this sort of coalition suffered a loss, they were able to regroup. Um, and I think the story of APCDs is not, you know, finished uh, being written simply uh, because of Gobay. But I do think that there, there was this kind of important um, setback. And indeed, you know, the court was the venue that uh, employers had to take the challenge to. I don't think that they were convinced they could have won uh, in the state legislature. And that is one indication that this coalition uh, had some teeth.
2: I want us to turn to a third article, um, continuing the theme of state-federal policy agenda setting and uh, inclusion of various political constituencies. And that's your article also in the Journal of Health Politics, Policy, and Law on the comments that were received during the Medicaid waiver processes or during certain Medicaid waiver processes. And I thought that this uh, article, again, with uh, your co-authors on shaping health policy for low-income population, it was so interesting to read this as an administrative law professor because you know I've I've co-authored a book on administrative law. I've taught about comments during rulemakings for over a decade, almost always with a sense of resignation, or almost of, you know, the sense that yes, there are comments, but overall the their ability to reflect either democratic will or expertise has been highly compromised by the types of astroturfing that's done by very well-funded. Organizations, or by spamming, or most recently by bots that appeared to have put in you know, fake comments—hundreds of thousands of them—in um, uh, the FCC net neutrality rulemaking. And there was, of course, the Tim the, uh, Krawick article about uh, Joe the Plumber and Dodd-Frank rulemaking, which uh, you cite. And which one you... of my
1: favorite administrative law articles? <laughs> yes, yes, In recent years, don't screw Joe the Plumber. <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. Yes, yes. P l u m m e r, of course. Um, and so, so, but but then you cite it, and and you give some reasons to hope for hope that that's not actually the case that in fact there are real citizens commenting and not only are there real citizens commenting but also they are making very important substantive points and so i was wondering if you could describe you know how you got the idea to look into this process why this process in particular and whether you were surprised by these results or not
1: right so um i think the the impetus for for studying this this waiver process was that the aca you know, made a lot of important changes, obviously, to sort of substantive uh, policy. And, and people, of course, focus a lot of their attention on that. But I think what, what is easy to forget um, is that uh, the ACA also required some changes in the process uh, by which people participate in um, waivers. There, were, there had been, prior to the ACA, no opportunity for notice and comment on Section 1115 uh, waivers. Um, but what the ACA did was it required um, HHS to uh, promulgate uh, regs that, um, Uh, provided opportunities for the public to comment on the approval process. And ultimately, what this resulted in is sort of actually two um, notice and comment uh, periods um, for uh, Section 1115 waivers. There's uh, usually a comment process at the state level. And then after the waiver is submitted to CMS or the application is submitted, there's a 30-day federal comment period. And, you know, I think like you, Frank, we were kind of skeptical of the idea that there was going to be a lot of public participation in this process, right? We we tried to benchmark. um, Obviously, we didn't have other uh, 1115 waivers to benchmark on. But we looked at things like uh, what happened when the regs were promulgated for Medicare Part C, right? After the Medicare Modernization Act. And, you know, we found a really low level of comments from individual citizens, you know, very, very few. I think about 14% of the comment letters uh, came from um, uh, people who were somehow affected uh, by the program. And so we were just sort of expecting that this is mainly going to be the standard sort of story about interest groups, providers, you know, healthcare uh, organizations kind of commenting, making sort of minor suggestions about um, the waivers. But what we found was that, you know, uh, that 64% of the comments were from uh, citizens, they're not from uh, interest groups, and and 55% of those uh, citizens who were commenting actually self-identified themselves as Medicaid eligible. And from the perspective of, you know, having done some work in, in surveying uh, Medicaid eligible populations, that, that to me was surprising in the sense that I think it's rare that that people know uh, they're necessarily eligible for Medicaid. It's called different things in different states. But we we saw this kind of high level of uh, public participation from people who said that they were uh, Medicaid eligible. The other thing that we were really interested in is that citizens who were commenting on the waivers actually knew specific provisions that were in them. Um, That you had uh, 68% of the uh, citizens who were uh, responding and 75% of those Medicaid eligible um, citizens uh, reported opposing um, the waivers. And when they did that, they also mentioned specific provisions that they opposed. That of those comments that op- oppose the waivers, you know, uh, a substantial majority of them mentioned the work requirements. Uh, they mentioned cost sharing. They mentioned the lack of uh, non-emergency uh, transportation. And so, you know, we this was, I think, from the perspective of people who are usually pretty dour about, you know, does the public participate in, in notice and comment? Um, this was actually really uh, surprising. And again, this is coming during the Obama administration. We look at five states, Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that were the first to obtain um, approval for Medicaid expansion uh, waivers via 1115. And this is not kind of when the program is, is initially sort of under threat um, in the Trump administration. This is before that. And, you know, this is, I think, quite a surprising um, finding for us.
0: So, sitting opposite the table from Professor uh, Doom and Gloom is uh, Professor cynic and Skeptic here. You know, how, how sure are we that these kinds of comments. Here or um, in comments um, addressed to uh, NPRMs and so on, really are written by real people. Is 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 there are there checks and balances here against this and other gaming and to make sure this is a difficult compound question? Let me also sort of ask you if you would to address some of the commonly occurring sort of competing political rhetoric that you discovered in these comments. Uh, in Particular that lovely dichotomy between personal responsibility and vulnerable populations that you highlighted.
1: Right, so we we did see you know this is one thing that I think we were concerned with um, in the paper is you know h- how do we know um, that these are in fact citizens and and I think the reality is it's it can be difficult to know for sure. And I think this is one kind of challenge in the regulatory process and uh, since the development of, of regulations.gov that the the cost of submitting these kinds of things uh, these kinds of comments are. are are quite low um, and you know, as I think we saw with the um, uh, the case of uh, the FCC, right? It's certainly the case there can be uh, manipulation. I think what made us feel more confident about this particular case is that this is a fairly new waiver program. It was in our mind a lot of these decisions were fairly low uh, in terms of uh, salience, and there's a sort of eyeball uh, check that we were sort of able to do, which is that you know people were in some cases providing their names and and phone numbers and addresses, right? And so. You know, we we got a strong sense from from actually doing the research that these were in fact real live human uh, beings, kind of providing this information. You know, one one aspect of public participation is it's it's of course not always the case that people are learning about these uh, waivers uh, on their own, and you know, naturally organizations, uh, political uh, organizations, are, are providing people who you know might be me- Medicaid eligible uh, with information about their you know the ability they have to participate in these kinds of processes. Uh, but that's fairly consistent with I think the way that individuals get mobilized into other forms of political participation, right? Members of the AARP learning about what proposed changes to Medicare or Social Security are on the docket, and uh, AARP kind of providing individuals with information about um, you know how to contact their their member of Congress. And so uh, in this in this particular situation, I think it's probably the case that there were uh, groups out there that were uh, providing this kind of information to citizens, and and that might be why you see some of the rhetoric, um, especially on the side of vulnerable populations, um, why some of that rhetoric might have emerged. Um, I think where you see the rhetoric on on personal responsibility, this is something we're, I think, kind of continuously interested in studying uh, with the proposal of uh, waivers with additional sort of work requirements in them um, in the last uh, year or two. I think that rhetoric is still there. I haven't looked at the uh, comments on Kentucky's waiver, uh, for instance, but I think it's worth noting that Kentucky's, the, the number of Kentucky's comments that were received, on that waiver uh, was astounding. Kentucky, that waiver uh, in the federal comment process says nothing about the states, uh, but uh, CMS received, I think, about 2,000 comments uh, in 2016. And now they actually extended the, the comment period. Now I think it's about up to, to 3,000. Um, and so for, for folks that are interested in this, this is totally uh, uh, worth um, looking at. But what do those comments say? To what extent are they talking about um, work requirements in the, in the um, vein of personal responsibility um, and so forth. I think that's still a sort of live question.
2: All right. And now I think we have our last question, which is a bit ironic because it may, uh, it touches on something that I think was a conversation we had on Twitter, Phil, or sort of exchanges about the nature of evidence in healthcare policymaking. So it was sort of the beginning of uh, <laughs> of what has turned out to be a really great conversation. And that is this question of um, evidence-based policy in healthcare. We've all heard the great dichotomy about, policy-based evidence versus evidence-based policy. Um, we've heard about from the congressional uh, commission on evidence-based policy, the idea of data as being at the core of good healthcare decision-making has been a real staple of, I'd say the technocratic health policy establishment for at least the past couple decades. On the other hand, we've had a few, um, dissonant notes there. One being from our past show guest, uh, Deborah Stone, who, um, wrote some very interesting, uh, pieces questioning the politicization, uh, and other problems with the data uh, rhetoric, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts. You know, I mean, you've certainly written some fascinating uh, pieces about the nature of knowledge in policymaking and how both the knowledge and insights of experts and citizens gets translated into the policymaking process but do you have some cautionary notes about the call for more data or the insistence upon more data from different authorities?
1: It's, it's interesting to me that data and evidence have this kind of long-lasting political allure, right? Even though we're in this sort of age of alternative facts and, and you can read any number of headlines that, you know, suggest, oh, Americans don't care about facts anymore. But, you know, we still live in a society where higher education is, is fairly uh, prevalent. People learn how to question political decisions, uh in some cases with the at least the the patina of uh, some sort of evidentiary basis i mean data and evidence are this kind of rhetorical way that you can call people out right and I, I think that uh as a result it's not always the case that you know data more data and evidence sort of solve um you know political uh problems right uh better evidence is is not necessarily a substitute for better politics and i think there are you know some really good examples of this recently the oregon medicaid experiment uh, uh, the Rand Corporation's review of gun control research, um, you know, any number of uh, recent studies on, on opioids that, that um, actually there's a there's a weird thing, which is like the better the study that you have, the more detailed, the more fine-grained, the more honest it is about reporting its limitations and uncertainties, um, the more opportunities that you have for a sort of political Rashomon um, to happen, um, that uh, it creates this like surface area for political contestation.
2: I think the political Rashomon is a fascinating one. On it. And I mean, I I was posting uh, a few weeks ago about how the work requirements were all being introduced by um, CMS as being subject to um, further analysis, evaluation, that it was all supposed to be evidence-driven, etc. And the question I had was, well, you know, you could just have endless experiments, right? I mean, you could say, oh well, well that one didn't work, but now we're going to try to instead of work requirements, we we'll make a volunteering requirements. Oh, we'll try that for five years. Oh, that didn't work. Well, now let's try a whole other set of things. And I. Think that you know there's a way in which um the evidence-based policymaking can be weaponized by the cynical I think that's very critical and I think your point about the political Rashomon test is a very powerful one as well because you know to the very extent that actors who are gathering data um, qualify it emphasize its limitations etc cetera, etc cetera, that's another way of leaving open the door to say endless contestation but do we really know anything right do we really can we really extrapolate anything or know anything so those are two sides of the coin but I think they point out that that the that you can never escape politics. That always there's going to be an irreducible residue of political orientation and assumptions about what's valuable. What are we to maximize? What are the accidents that we can accept, and what are the ones that are unacceptable?
1: Right. And I think I mean I think that eleven fifteen waivers have this kind of you know character. They they were designed as this sort of wrapped in this scientific rhetoric uh, experiment. I think is even maybe in the statute the word experiment um, and you know clearly. They were they were meant to be, I think, fairly limited um, uh, tests of uh, certain ideas. But, you know, now we spend, what, $10 billion nationally um, on an annual basis on 1115 waivers in, in, I think, 10 states. They make up more than 75% of the Medicaid budget. Are these really demonstrations? Are these really experiments? I, I tend to think that they are a, a safety valve that allows states to make policy changes that either, you know... Wouldn't be um, political uh, feasibly at the national level, or wouldn't be feasible at the state level if you had to go through the legislative process. Right. So the fact that our legislative process is more or less, you know, I think I can be frank about this, broken. Congress can't make policy except maybe, you know, big tax cuts. You know, I think that narrowly sort of attending. Well, what are the specific requirements on on what kind of hypotheses you have to pre-register? What kind of methods you have to use? I mean, I think all of that is important, and you know, I'm I'm all for you know good data in in decision making. Um, but we shouldn't pretend that the big problem is that we're not you know, using RCTs. Right? The big problem is that Congress can't make effective policy. And now CMS is pushing Section 1115, I think, to the brink of what Congress meant when they wrote it. And in my professional opinion, I, I think that they've gone over it with work requirements. I think it's very, very hard to point to the the code and, and see where that is uh, a feasible interpretation of, of the statute.
0: Is your point then, Phil, that it's not just the laboratory of the states anymore. It's mad scientists in state
1: laboratories. States remain a, a place where you can um, do experimentation, and I, I think that you know I, w- I would consider myself a I think a defender of federalism as a as a institutional defense of kind of preserving some opportunity to experiment. But I, I think that that's often where the discussion ends, and there's no real consideration about what are the the sort of costs of uh, doing policy um, in this way and. And, and if we're going to be serious about the idea that states are laboratories of experimentation, maybe we should actually treat policy that way. Maybe our statutes should reflect that. Maybe the way that agencies interpret statutes um, should reflect that. Because it seems, you know, that it's a... And, and I think that the funny thing is, I'm not even sure that the the defenders of that that are trying to use that idea instrumentally even try to make that claim stick uh, anymore. I think it's just understood uh, what's, what's happening. There's a sort of Adam Curtis, you know, referred to as uh, hyper-normalization. That everyone knows that that's not uh, what's happening. Everyone knows that everyone knows that that's not what what's happening. But we sort of come to uh, sort of accept or at least become immobilized by that by that fact.
0: And that was the weak in health law. Big thank you to Professor Rocco, who on Twitter is at philip rocco that was really interesting stuff phil thank you so much thanks for having me we post our show notes at twill.com i'm at nicholas terry on twitter and frank is at frank pasquale on twitter thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week